Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? How are you? I'm doing well as well, and thank you for having me today. Super excited for this. Yeah, thank you so much, and thanks again, Jessica, for joining me on this uh, series. Uh, cool. Yeah, definitely. So this is our last episode of the series with Jessica Lee, and uh, as always, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. And I'm very grateful for being on this journey with you. And I know uh, there's a lot of things that we can hopefully work together in the future. So yeah. Um, so thank you so much. Um, so I'll just go right straightforward to the questions and I divided questions to the four different episodes. Um, the three episodes we had earlier, then we have just a final question. Um, so um, I'm more than looking forward to your response and I know they'll be very intuitive, uh, applicable and practical for our listeners yeah. as well as for how we, how we think about the future in COVID war. So are you ready? Yes, happy <laughs> So uh, I know from the first episode, which was a while ago, I think it's April 24th, uh, we talked about the impact of COVID-19 on entrepreneurs and businesses. Uh, do you think anything has changed from back then to now, uh, you know, Friday, June 5th? Um, is there any improvement in terms of how businesses are doing, uh, using the resources that are available, like from the government, uh, um, like the Care Act that was passed in March 27th, or do you think is there's a decline rather in terms of the opportunities that they have to to actually survive the COVID uh, experience? Yeah, so I think a few different things. I think firstly, from the VC angle, there was this period of time in March and April um, when venture investors were very focused on portfolio support. They were like 100 or 90% or a very large majority of their time, their energy and their focus was on portfolio support um, and that lasted obviously for a while but I think since then um, you know in May and um, obviously now as well there's been kind of a reversion to the mean I'd say still more portfolio support than non-COVID times which is to be expected but um, there's definitely much less of it which is good um, since there means there's less fires to put out and so that's the first thing I'll note. The second thing um, is that um, I think founders and investors have found better ways to connect. I think there was this mental hurdle on doing virtual only pitches. Um, I think that mental hurdle was a bit less for funds like ours which write smaller checks and are high velocity, um, you know, large portfolio, don't need rounds, um, but it was much harder for funds that are focused on Series A, for example, and leading rounds and writing larger checks um, because they obviously um, are putting much more skin in the game. And so they want to be really sure. And part of being sure is getting to know the founder really well, which includes in their minds, at least meeting them in person. And so I think there was this, you know, panic from founders that was like, you know, how will we ever get capital if we can't meet VCs and to raise now or in the near future and then for vcs there was this panic around um you know how are we going to do deals if we 
can't meet founders in person, but from speaking with lots of friends who are at shops like that, that, you know, write larger checks, lead rounds, um, et cetera, um, they have recently in the past few weeks, I'd say, written their first or their first few virtual only checks. And so I think that um, that's been kind of a mental hurdle that investors are getting around. Um, and so that's been helpful for founders as well in terms of being able to get capital. Um, the third thing too is that I think people, founders specifically, just have a much better understanding of the landscape, and so they know what's going on. Not you know that anybody knows what to expect really, but I think that in March, like every single week, there was something changing. And obviously now we're not back to normal, but we have sort of settled into a place that's more static and less dynamic, um, which is good from the um, you know not worsening perspective at least. And so I think that there's kind of um, a better macro landscape for founders to build upon with that deeper understanding. Um, and then fourth, I think there's just much more resources out there for founders to make sense of what's going on. Um, like they, you know, VCs have published in the cloud, there's lots of podcasts, like you know, playbooks and um, people understand it and they can reach out to particular advisors or mentors, there's different events, um, et cetera. And so there's just so much more knowledge around like how to handle this sort of thing, um, both through the deeper understanding of what's actually going on or what might go on or what are like the possible scenarios of the future, as well as from people who've not, you know, truly been there, done that before, since obviously this is very unprecedented, but definitely from people who have had relevant experience from previous crises. Um, and so I think there's just much more resources um, out there for founders. Um, and then I think also um, the last thing I'll note on the team front, so obviously there were a lot of layoffs that were happening and it wasn't really just the layoffs that was hurting companies or company morale, but I think a lot of it too, was um, just the waiting for the other shoe to drop. So like a lot of employees knew that there would be some layoffs happening at their companies, um, or at least that was a likely scenario. And they were just like working obviously, but uncertain on whether like they were going to be fired the next day, which is obviously a really bad place for your team to be in. But I think all the layoffs that have needed to be done um, have been done. And so um, I think that that's been um, a blessing in many ways since, you know, obviously it's very unfortunate that people who have been laid off, but the people have closure and they're able to find their next job. And then people who haven't been laid off, they are pretty sure that they won't be. And so I think there's just much better team morale. Thanks. I think they're very good <clears throat> three points that you listed and actually like the last phrase talk about dynamic to static i think that by itself kind of shows that i mean we're getting familiar with the situation as a whole i think the follow-up question i think kind of relates to kind of what you mentioned at the end is like is this do you think based on like i know you've been doing some other interviews and you've actually been interviewing some entrepreneurs and investors do you sense that this crisis is similar to previous crisis that we mentioned in earlier episodes or do you think it's a little bit different uh, from the previous crisis? Yeah, so I think there's obviously similarities, but I think fundamentally it's very different because with every other crisis, I mean, you know, maybe we could throw it back to like the Spanish influenza, but obviously that was very long ago. And also we were, of course, a very, very different society. There was like no internet then, et cetera. So I don't think that's very comparable and everything outside of the public health crisis itself. Um, but kind of comparing to 
things that are more um, you know truly relevant time-wise you know, 2008 2009 um, maybe maybe some happenings in like the late 20th century um, but kind of looking back on those times those were purely economic crises and so they were more deterministic I mean not that anybody could predict the future but you could theoretically create a model around what would happen and um, you know you knew that there would be an ending um, in the foreseeable future and you knew kind of what you would be able to do um, or not you specifically but like the government and other stakeholders would be able to do in order to ameliorate that there was more of a playbook and it was also more like man-made um, which is not good obviously but um, has a better and faster resolution um, whereas with this um, obviously there will be economic ramifications but um, it's going to you know be much less predictable much more unpredictable um, since nobody knows what will happen with the vaccine and how we're supposed to reopen. And um, you can't even look at examples in other countries because they're fundamentally different. They might have different tracking systems, different cultures, um, you know, different institutions, um, different leaders, different human psychologies, um, et cetera. And so there's just no playbook from other countries um, or from history since there was never this bundling of an economic and a public health crisis um, during, you know, the recent past, um, you know, even like a hundred years. Yeah, that's that's a really really great analysis. Um, yeah, thanks thanks for that. Um, I'm just breaking that down. So I I think went to episode two. We talked about female founders, and I think that was a really nice episode that we talked about. And um, I think the two questions I, I came up with was, you know, one was like. Um, what, what are some of the current opportunities that female founders and uh, investors, female investors, should be aware of? Um, I mean, just beyond the care act that they can continue to search out for and also look into to help help them, you know, either raise funds or actually, or you know, kind of, you know, get out of this uh, um, this crisis in some sense, or, or you know, hopefully grow as well. So. Are there any opportunities that uh, we can you can recommend for female founders and investors? Yeah, definitely. So one, um, I think in general, like obviously, just to address, of course, the awful um, you know situation in the country from a racial perspective, not just a, a gender one, but obviously more topically a racial one. I think there's clearly so much, um, you know, racial discrimination and lack of opportunity access um, for minorities and for Black founders and Black investors um, in particular. And I think nowadays something that I've been trying to do is um, just like open up my calendar to Black founders and, um, you know, or even if it's not time they want, if they want um, or what would, hopefully they, they want time as well. But, you know, if, what would be more helpful to them is, intros or like product feedback or help with hiring people etc like just whatever it is they need I want to make myself available and I think a lot of VCs um, and a lot of just people in general not just VCs are doing similar things and so I think that's been um, obviously there's so much more to be done and there's just so many issues but I think that in of itself has been really uplifting to see um, and so I think this could you know just be a really great opportunity for 
black founders, um, black investors, and as well as you know female founders, female investors, um, especially founders, to reach out to VCs and take them up on that offer. Because um, I think so many times people are like, oh, they're probably like super busy or they like won't respond to me. But um, you know, during usual times, maybe they won't. But I think now people are very conscientious and very mindful. At least I hope they are around allocating their time and their resources and being supportive of people. And so I think that um, specifically diverse founders and. So I think that there's, um, you know, hopefully some opportunity there for founders um, of color or founders um, who, are, who are women uh, to reach out to VCs and have those conversations. It doesn't even have to be like, um, you know, a really official formal pitch. It could just be very much like a candid, open, transparent um, kind of mentorship session. And so I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think I saw a LinkedIn uh, post that, Thing, right? yeah. I think you had an interview and it was really it was really nice of you to open your schedule f- to help uh you know black founders and black founders both men but men and women uh, potentially and and yeah. Yeah, so I felt like this conversation re- required a, a whole range of uh it's a whole topic by itself but I think within uh the context of where we are as a nation um Having people like you actually provide that your services at the at no cost, I think, be invaluable to shift the needle um, um, towards you know providing opportunities that can scale uh, not just I mean beyond entrepreneurial investment, but to how do we uh, change the policies and you know um, help the system as a whole change, right? So I think it begins with people yeah. like you. So thank you so much. I think I I mean I, when this episode record i'll actually say that as well that you're open to to uh providing mentorship uh for black founders yeah definitely thanks so much for that it's really nice of you um just this a light question do you have like any top three female founders and investors that you look up to um yes yeah, that's a good question. So one, I'll, I'll name a few, obviously three. Um, so I'll start off. Cindy Bai, she is an investor at, um, well, she's actually starting her own fund now called Capital X. But previously she was at Zillion Eyes and she is um, just like an incredible um, mentor to me. She would like to give a few examples. So how we initially got connected is I had written an article um, back in the fall on, on non-intuitive things, I think, make a successful founder. And this was like the first real thought piece I had written, uh, but it really took off, was published in Noteworthy, which is one of the big medium blogs and received thousands of views. Um, the Charles River Vectors people who run Accelerated featured it in their newsletter. And so um, just was super happy about the outcome. And basically she had tweeted, she didn't even know who I was, but she had come across the article somehow and tweeted about it and said that she loved it. And that, you know, I was a Gen Z woman, um, Asian woman and mentor at Soma Capital, um, this soon before I had a Twitter. Um, and so I connected with her through that because someone had flagged that tweet to me who has a Twitter because I didn't have Twitter at the time and I um, reached out to her and we connected and we had a really great conversation she was just so kind and just so amazing and then when later on um, we caught up again um, and she connected me with Harry Stebbings, who's the founder of 20 Minute VC, um, that's the largest independent VC media group. They have like, um, you know, hundreds of 
like I think like dozens of millions of views or downloads on each of their podcasts and he's just like an incredible person um and she just connected with me with him like I didn't even ask ask for it like I wasn't like you know asking her specifically for that but she just thought it would be a, a fruitful introduction and um that's proved like so incredible for me in so many ways and like just being in touch with Harry and learning from him and um, you know seeing how responsive and incredible he is has really like added a really meaningful note to my network and so very cool I really appreciated that and then when I first got a Twitter she has five thousand followers herself wow. um, and she announced to the world not to the world really but like to all her followers which is quite a lot of people that I had gone to Twitter and she had like no reason to do that but she just wanted to like help me get more followers and so I ended up getting a lot of followers from that as well and like whenever I have projects she always like retweets them and um one time like Jason Kelly Canis who's like an angel investor in lots of huge companies, including Uber and Calm. Um, he tweeted asking like who wanted to be his co-host for his podcast and he was looking for like people who are not white men. Um, and she like tweeted and recommended me and I, you know, am not his co-host, but he ended up following me on Twitter as well. And so did his show. And so that was really incredible. And then this other time somebody had tweeted like who's like the best young talent inventor and she had tagged me um alongside a lot of like people i really admire and so super honored for that and ended up getting some more attention there and so like she's just been so like amazing and so selfless and like so kind and like paying it forward and like really being a big amazing mentor to me so that's probably like the one of the main people i'd say i'm super grateful to um inventor um and then second um i guess not in, not an investor, but um, I guess, you know, you mentioned founders as well. So Kadrin, who's the founder and CEO of um, Alpha, she's really amazing um, as well. And she's just been so kind and like, you know, we correspond a lot just to, you know, run Alpha, but um, she's just like been so smart and like sharing different advice around like ways to improve my content and make it more tactical and reach out to people who would have interesting things to say, but maybe aren't like as intuitively um, kind of well-known or, you know, it would be intuitive for me to reach out to. And so she's been so great in giving advice um, there as well. Um, and so I've been super inspired um, by that. And then um, the final person I'll say is um, actually, just not a founder or an investor, which is an operator. So I guess it's this nice diversity of, of founder, founder, investor, and operator, all, all three buckets covered. But this woman called Amy Snook. Um, so she was the previous chief of staff at Glossier, which is obviously a really big unicorn company. Um, and then now she's the COO of House, which is this really up and coming consumer startup. And she's just been really inspirational to me because I think so much of my life, I've only ever, not only, but I think. I've mostly been exposed to founders and investors um, and founders and investors are by nature really visionary, really creative people. And I'm much more of an execution oriented person. I'm very operationally driven. Like, um, you know, when I think about innovation, it's more about like, how do I streamline this process or like, how do I, um, you know, make X more efficient at the very micro level? It's not about, you know, how am I going to reinvent the transportation industry or how am I going to reinvent rural estate? That's cool to read about for sure but you know not just like what I think about daily and um you know even just in terms of my own practices I'm like super fast to respond via email and um like have a different email accounts for different jobs that I do and like have always zero inbox and all of them and like I'm super specific about my calendar and like having a deliverable to do at the end of each day I mean end of each hour and so I never really had like a role model who 
was, um, I'm sure I've read about people or, or obviously they exist, but I've never like really connected with someone who's super like execution oriented and has found a lot of success. And so I think um, that was kind of hard for me where I had, you know, amazing people to look up to, but they are really different from me in terms of like their core competencies and their skill sets. And um, meeting Amy Stark and just like seeing like she was so fast responding to emails. She like was so thoughtful. She was so organized. Like she was just so on top of everything. Like she was a great communicator. She's also very introverted. And she wrote this piece for Alpha on like how to be an introverted leader. And that was super inspiring to me because I'm also incredibly introverted. Like I'm very professionally extroverted. I can have conversations like, you know, VCs, you have calls all day. But like my instinctive preference is to not really be like, you know, in a social setting and more just like to read on my own or to do emails or just something kind of like independent. And so it was so inspirational to read her piece on like how to be an introverted leader and like help her write that and share her story. And um, then she did office hours for Alpha, which is so incredible. And I learned so much from her. And so she's another person I really look up to. Thank you. Thank you so much for showcasing that. I mean, I think there's diversity in terms of just the perspective of mentors you have. I mean, I actually like the last uh, lady you mentioned. It's like, you know, it gives you a different perspective, but it also kind of relates to you personally. And I do think you now, you have the capacity to be a mentor for others. So I that's why that was the primary of this question, like to give the, that opportunity that, you know, this is a time for you as well to actually be what, you know, you, I think you have been blessed and opportunity to have access to people like that with those platforms and in relation to what's going on in the country right now i think there's a lot that you can be of help um and no pressure but yeah i think i think there's a lot that you can offer Definitely. and you're in the yeah the, you're at like the right intersection for that so thank you thanks for for answering those questions those questions yeah. um so just going to episode three we talked about china and I think one thing we missed, and maybe I didn't get it right, it was like we didn't really talk about opportunities for investment in China from a foreign investor. Like if a foreign investor wants to go invest in China, what are some of the opportunities that you think are there um, in China that, um, I mean, someone, I mean, let me say an African or an American investor wants to get into the startup scene in, in China what are some of the opportunities that you think are there uh, available, maybe in COVID, in the COVID world, post-COVID world? Yeah, totally. So I guess a couple interesting things on like the investment landscape. So for VC in particular, um, basically I think in China there's a lot slash most of the VC scene is very imported. So you'll have like a branch of Sequoia or a branch of Matrix or uh, which are all funds that are, are technically U.S. headquartered. And so I think there's a lot of that. Um, and then the other component of VC are like the venture arms of places like Baidu or Tencent, um, these, you know, big tech companies in China. Um, and the final bucket is government um, oriented, um, which is obviously very top down. And that's very fickle depending on the government preferences and there's less co-investing um, in venture in China uh, and also less networking founders are more transactional and so I think those are kind of some interesting notes I'm not sure like what is super actionable from that I mean obviously if you're able to be some kind of LP and Matrix or Sequoia China that could be interesting or 
if you're able to connect with friends who work at big tech companies in China um, that have venture arms, that could be interesting. If you're able to kind of spot where the government is kind of trending in terms of their focus, that could be interesting to sort of see where the capital will flow. Um, but I think it's hard to really actionably invest in China um, as like an individual. And then as a fund, um, it would mostly be through partnerships if you can, um, or like hopefully having some kind of branch of your investment fund in China. Um, but I guess to speak to some um, interesting sort of trends I'm seeing in, in e-commerce, I think in China, um, brand building is really tough because people split, people as in companies and also as in consumers split their energy on many different channels, including WeChat, Weibo, um, live streaming, like, et cetera. So no channel is super effective. Um, I think that's that, that's one aspect that's interesting about the startup scene. Something else is like, um, you know, Pinduoduo, obviously a publicly traded company, I think they IPO'd in summer of 2018. Um, so they actually have built a really big business just from second, or not just, but largely from second and third tier cities, um, where people initially thought there wouldn't be any consumer demand, but there actually is a ton. And so that's been really interesting um, to see. And then I think also trust building is super important in China. 40% of commerce comes from mom and pop shops. And so you're, if you're able to build this operating layer on top of these mom and pop shops and like be an intermediate layer to help them um, bring their businesses and their technology into the you know 21st century, if you will, if you establish that trust, that's super powerful. Um, the other thing too is I think with WeChat, like why WeChat is such a integrated solution as discussed in the China episode, but I'll touch upon it again, is that it's kind of the mobile first, mobile first um, country. And so people you know, when they got their phones, they weren't looking specifically for something they had seen on desktop because they had not had a desktop. So they had no kind of pre-tags and they were just exploring for apps in general and WeChat was there and they were great. And um, now they've been able to capture the user and just upsell to them. And so I think that's super interesting. Um, and then I think what's interesting too is with, you know, Amazon people, brands obviously have these concerns around like, you know, will Amazon kind of kill my brand? Like I can't be my own Thing. But what's really great in China is that you have Douyin, which is like the Amazon of China. Um, and, you know, so they, they are an aggregator in many ways of like bringing different brands onto their platform. But um, they let brands have their own voice and like use video and use media to show like how food is made. If it's a brand selling food or like if it's an artisan, like how they're crafting their craft or like if it's a farmer, how they're farming. Um, and so I think that. China has really cracked um, finding a balance between Amazon and between people's own storefronts because obviously there's a lot of value for 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 brands on Amazon, but also a lot of challenges. I think China has been able to find that kind of balance. Um, and I think those are kind of like a couple of interesting things um, in um, Chinese startup world, um, if that's helpful. But then also I think kind of moving forward, um, just looking at capital flows, a lot of a lot of um, investors like recently invested a bunch in China because they didn't think they'd be able to do more moving forward as kind of nations close borders um, in more ways than just plane flights. And so I think that there's a lot of um, interesting ambiguity around 
the future of China's interactions with the rest of the world. Um, and obviously, I think that's going on in Hong Kong. Like, China's really taking a stance um, that's obviously not very pro-democratic or, or collaborative, and so to say the least. And so I think that's something to kind of keep in mind as well if you're considering like different political instability or even like ethical issues, um, things like that. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's very, that makes sense. I think, um, I mean, and it was just a follow-up question because I think China has been doing a lot of investment, especially in Africa. Do you think uh, with uh, what's happening now, I mean, with the relations with Hong Kong and, you know, the Western world, but most importantly, like how the, how to interact with Africa specifically and other emerging markets like in Latin America and Southeast Asia. Do you think they'll invest more uh, capital post-COVID or do you think they'll retreat back into uh, doing more internal uh, economic investment? I think a mixture of both. I, I think China plays a super long game. Like I think in every other leader's mind that you put a discount on the future um, and you multiply future cash flows or future returns by some number that's less than one. But I think what's really interesting in China is that they have a really unique bargaining model, if you will, where the discount rate is actually greater than one. So it's not really a discount rate, it's like an amplifier. And so um, that's because, you know, the party rules for life, um, especially Xi Jinping. And so I think it's an interesting way of thinking that's very different from basically everybody else um, that one would know in the world. And so I think they take a very long-term view and um, they are severing ties with the developed world um, in many ways because they're fundamentally at odds with each other and i think it's they kind of see like emerging markets as a way to form alliances they do recognize the importance of alliances and that's obviously really clear um but they're looking more at the future and less about like who's in power right now but more about like who's um you know good to know um but you know, kind of like in the in the long term future, and then I think kind of that's kind of a newer development, I'd say. But then I think internally, it's been something they've been kind of doing that sort of my thesis had centered around of their shift post two thousand eight, and so they've been doing. They realize that they can't rely on exports, and so they've been trying to find ways to um, stimulate more consumption and investment driven returns um, and growth in the country. And so I think that'll continue to to be a focus. Um, so I think both really, um, but the one area that they're focusing less on is probably making nice with the developed world. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, I'm, no I've been, we have this group every Friday we talk about emerging markets in China which comes up and what you said, you know, most, something that we have discussed a lot in that weekly group and is how China thinks long-term. Um, and the interesting thing is most African presidents stay for like decades, you know, I'm from Cameroon and the president has been there since 1982. Yeah. So that creates, I mean, it's just like um, um, that to create, you know, environment where um, maybe the political um, rulers in most of these African countries stay for so long that somewhat predictable um, what you expect from them if you make a very uh, um, long-term investment. But at the same time, it's very complicated. There are a lot of nuances that come into play that maybe we don't know. But I think that's definitely right. I think China has a lot of uh, skin in the game in Africa for its, as, a, as a continent. And it'd be interesting to see what happens after this. Yeah. Um, so that's a COVID nineteen. Um, but well, so 
I have just one last question, and I mean, feel free to kind of give a, nah, I mean, a closing statement on that. But I, I just wanted to get it out there, like you know, how can people reach out to you? I know you have a very amazing blogs. I've read some of your blogs; really cool, well thought out, well polished, and a lot of interesting conversations that can start beyond that. But um, I just wanted to give you the floor to kind of give. The listeners a sense of how people can reach out to you, especially you saying you know you want to give extra hours or some of your hours for people of of Afro African American descent or Black people, especially in this very interesting time in America. Yeah, definitely. So you can find me on Twitter. Um, it's Jessica um, Feia. So that's F-E-I-Y-A-L-I. Um, that's my middle name. Then L-I is my last name, obviously. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. And then I also have a website um, that's bit.ly backslash just my full name, Jessica L-I. Um, and you can also find me on LinkedIn, um, and I'm not I'm like a weird like LinkedIn link, but um, it, you can just search me there. And um, if, if you can't, there's a lot of Jessica Lee's, I guess, but um, if you can search my firm, so I'm a capital, I should, should be the first result. So feel free to connect with me at um, any of those those areas. And I also have a Medium blog. Um, it's Justly, so not Jessica, but J-E-S-S-L-I. And so those are kind of the, the four main avenues. Yeah. And just final thing, I'm gonna miss this series. I think it was fun. I think I got the most out of any of the people that interviewed you. I interviewed four times. <laughs> I mean, five times. Yeah, this is so fun. Uh, and also, just to give you a point of reference. So, in 2014, you actually helped me edit some of my articles. Yeah. On LinkedIn, I don't know if you remember. That. I do remember. Yeah, that was pretty. I mean, I was like, damn, like I've known you for a really long time. Yeah. Um, we connect um, and work together again. Yeah, this has been fun. So thank you again. Thanks for answering the questions. Thanks for this journey. It's for past series. Thanks for being patient. Thanks for thanks for everything. Like truly, truly, sincerely. So um hopefully we can work on something else yeah, in the nearest future. Yeah, love I think this was this was so much fun and um I'm looking forward to reading more of your articles and you know, seeing how amazing you're doing and all the other frontiers that you're working on. So Thank you so much. Yeah, really great to to chat and looking forward to this being released. And thanks for providing a great platform. Really enjoyed working with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.